This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome, everyone, to Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is the meaning of life. We are going to be pursuing the Meaning of life, we've been looking at this topic for the past couple of shows, and we're going to continue on seeing how far we can get towards the meaning of life just by using logic and what we can know for certain. And of course, Keith, we should let people know this is not the board game we're doing. That's right. Not the the game of life. The meaning of life. Right. Gotcha. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. You can find archived shows there, or if you want to podcast, you can find us on iTunes under the podcast section. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. And Kirk, we've got a bunch of emails, so I guess we should try to go through some of them. I'm sorry we can't go through all of them. And looking at my stack of stuff, though, I have, I see we've got a quote of the day. I think you're going to do that quote of the day, right? Yep. You want me to do that now? Absolutely. Might as well start the show off right. Well, actually, this would be a quote of the week since we're on weekly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Unless you want to do seven quotes. A negative. That okay. would be a no. No, we're just doing one. Okay, this is a quote that we have here by a man named John Lennox. Not John Lennon. This is John Lennox. That's somebody That's right. different. John Lennox. This guy He's doesn't... the Oxford professor of mathematics who has debated... Richard Dawkins several times until Richard Dawkins will no longer debate him anymore. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, he keeps getting trounced, so. (laughs) Okay, very interesting. Okay, and his quote is this. He says, Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence. It is irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of avoiding intelligent discussion. Very good. From John Lennox. And here is the show for intelligent discussion. We do try to keep things at a high level here. I know sometimes it's a stretch. People don't often have a chance to spend a lot of time reading books and looking into higher math and and you know, quantum physics and things like that that we sometimes talk about on this show, but we do appreciate those who listen and try to grow with us as we learn and, and speak to our some of our interesting guests. Yes. And we also appreciate some of the atheists who write to us and listen to our show. Especially the polite ones. Yes, exactly. And one good example is Felipe. He's written to us before. I believe he is still an atheist. He wrote to us and said, I guess he's talking about, this would be when we started talking about the meaning of life, chapter one, or episode one. He says, you talked about not accepting ideas from an authority or checking if the idea is true 
before accepting it. But how do you qualify the religious education that is given to you and every young children? The source is an authority, parents, priests, and the receiver is unable to check the validity of the idea because he, she is too young to be able to understand the concepts. Shouldn't we ban any religious teaching until the age of 15 to 16 or so, so people are able to understand what they are taught? That is from Felipe. Well, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's kind of, it reveals a little bit about the the heart of atheism. You know, what they automatically jump to is banning things. You know, it's it's part of, it's why left-wing politics is so extreme in this area. I mean, think about San Francisco, where just about everything is banned, <laughs> uh, including uh, McDonald's toys, right? Uh, I mean, that is what the left does first, is tries to control people, tries to ban things, tries to censor things. This is why they refuse to allow any intelligent design scientists from publishing, why they try to get uh, journalists who are opposed to the the idea of global warming, why they try to get them fired. You know, this is this is where they come from. They have this this view about people that we're nothing but animals. And so just as you can control an animal, you can control people. So that's their first thing. Well, you know, I think I think it also comes down to these kind of people think that they're smarter than everyone else and that they know better, so we need to ban all this stuff so the less intelligent people don't get fooled by it. Right, right, because they're so certain they're right. Right. Yeah, well, well, my question, my question to Felipe would be: I understand what he's saying that okay, you know, um, heavy theological stuff. Maybe little kids don't understand that, so he's saying okay, maybe we shouldn't. Um, and of course, we don't. That's right. We do keep the heavy theological stuff, and especially in the United States, secularists have gotten religious teaching banned from schools. Sure. So, but, but here's uh, my response to that. I would say, okay, then if we're going to ban all religious teaching until you're 15 years old, then how about let's ban all teaching on evolution until you're 15 years old, too? Right. Yes, exactly. The religion of uh, atheism. Sure. And, and you know, he, he doesn't address the issue of that psychologists have shown that children are instinctively theists. They are born with a concept of God. So why should we try to inhibit that? Why should we try to repress that instinct? Uh, It's born in us to believe in God. Uh, God made us that way. So, uh, you know, the other other thing is they don't realize their unintended consequences. This is typical of leftist thinking. Religion is the foundation for moral beliefs. So, if you get rid of religion, you also get rid of moral beliefs. And we know that since the United States started banning religious training, things have gotten a lot worse. There's been a lot of studies that have linked crime to the absence of moral reasoning. And that comes when children are developing their moral reasoning is between ages three and six. And if they don't develop their moral reasoning properly... They don't learn the difference between right and wrong, and this is where crime comes from. Then so they end up getting into trouble for the rest of their lives. Yeah, so so even though we're not for banning things, we are for open discussion and teaching kids both sides of issues, theism and atheism. We hope that kids know learn as much about atheism as they can so that they'll know to avoid it. It'd be actually better to ban atheism from children, and we'd have a much more moral society.
Yep. All right, so there's our letter email from Felipe and our response. We got a, another email from Yancey. Or not another one. This is a new one, but it's another email, and this one is from Yancey. Okay. Who says, hi there. I'm a new listener of the show, and I love your show very much. I was born in Costa Rica. Now I live in Vancouver, Canada. It was a pleasure to recommend your show to my friends and family. Thanks for what you do. I'm going through your older podcasts, and I'm fascinated with the information you were mentioning in a show about the Exodus. You talked about the Pharaoh and his daughter. I went back to read the story, but the info you mentioned is quite interesting. I'd like to read more about it. Do you have a link that I can go to? So I sent Yancey a couple of links. There are good archaeology articles on creation.com. Just go to the Journal of Creation portion, and there's a search there, and you can search. I think the name of Pharaoh's daughter is Hatshepsut, and don't ask me how to spell that, so I guess you're (laughs) on your own when you try to (laughs) search for that. But Pharaoh's daughter ought to do it. And then there's another good website, uh, BibleArchaeology.org. They have several articles on who was the the Pharaoh of the Exodus and who was his daughter. That's, so that's I think, a good site. They publish a really good magazine with really interesting information about the latest archaeological findings that relate to the Bible. Yeah, and they've got a good e- uh, email letter that you can get, too. It's so so that's uh, those are both really great websites. All right, let's see. We've got some couple emails from someone that was uh, just giving us material for the show. And so these are long. I thought... One of the things was fairly interesting. Let's see. It talks about the discovery of a tulip-shaped creature. This is kind of interesting, Kirk. They discovered this in the Burgess Shale, which is up in Canada. It's the Cambrian layer. So it's discovered in the Cambrian explosion, which I believe now the latest thing I heard is that that Cambrian explosion supposedly occurred over about a 5 million year period, which is a blink of an eye in virtually every living body plan for plants and animals suddenly appears. And so he's talking about this paleontologist, Lorna O'Brien, who gets interviewed, and he gives the link. He says, during the interview, O'Brien said, well, it's actually quite surprising that given we have over 1,100 specimens of this tulip-shaped creature, we still can't actually place this animal on the tree of life. And so he thought that was real interesting that they're, you know, completely clueless as to where this would fit in the tree of life. Maybe it doesn't fit. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the problem. It doesn't fit, and that's why they don't know where to put it. Right. And so he says, how does evolution explain the Cambrian explosion of every major animal body plant in a single rock system? Then he quotes from Stephen Jay Gould, who said, quote, an elegant study published in 1993 clearly restricts this period of phyletic flowering to a mere... Five million years. Okay, so that's the reference I was thinking of, and that's from Scientific American, October 1994, page 89. And so we thank David for all this information, some more, some stuff about a debate between a couple of professors, and so that's that for that email. And then he, oh, he sent this, uh, this is kind of funny, this was his response to an atheist who was commenting about a John Huntsman who was backing evolution. Mm-hmm. So this is from the atheist, and I'll just point out a couple of things. Now, D- 
David didn't mention this in his response, but I just saw this incredible contradiction in the middle of this guy's paragraph, so I thought I'd point this out. He says, okay, so this is the atheist. He says, when the creationist ideas can can show anything wrong with the theory of evolution and the evidence it describes, then scientists will start listening. To date, let's see, this is going to be too long. Let me jump down. Um, so they pretend, then talking about creationists, they are not scientists for one major blindingly obvious reason. They are not open-minded. But he just said that the the evolutionist scientists don't listen to the intelligent design people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he says, once they start giving evidence, then we'll start listening. So he admits that they don't listen. And then he accuses the ideas of being closed-minded. So I just thought that was really hilarious. Well, you're closed-minded because you won't listen to us, but we're not closed-minded because we're right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Isn't that funny? Uh-huh. <laughs> So then I know we're going long with these letters, but we did get another one. This one came actually two days ago, but I didn't see it until a few minutes before the show. So I wanted to, since it addresses the podcast that we're doing currently, and it talks about it has a disagreement with us, I thought we'd better cover it. And maybe it'll be a background for the, pa- the previous two shows, or actually the previous three shows, two of which we've podcasted already. So let's see, this is from Kurt, and I'll just read through, he gives two objections, so I'll read through it, and then we can address each item. Unfortunately, I didn't get a, this are, these are good challenges, and I need to do more research on the issue, but I'll just throw a few things out. He says, hi guys, just listening to your show called The Meaning of Life, number two. I wanted to give you some feedback that there were two points you made very strongly which are completely objectively wrong. Okay, so the first, he says, the first is that you asserted that there is nothing that happens without a cause. I'm sure you must have heard somewhere that events at the quantum level happen without causes all the time. A proponent, I'm sorry, a prominent example is radioactive decay, where an atom spontaneously breaks off a chunk to become something smaller. These events happen completely without a cause. They are truly spontaneous. Another example is the creation of virtual particles, which, is, which also is uncaused. At first, someone may think that these events have some underlying cause, which we simply haven't discovered, but this has been ruled out. If you'd like to read more, look up some articles on Bell's inequality. Let's see, he continues, something else you mentioned is that there are exceptions to the second law of thermodynamics, those being life and intelligence. You backpedaled on the exceptions thing in your discussion, even though you said several times that they're exceptions, they're not. However, since you said some things that made me think you are using that as shorthand for a different idea, I'm not counting this one as an error, but I'd like to see you explain to your audience that there are no exceptions to the second law at the macro level. Quantum events can have exceptions, I believe. Then he continues the second flagrant error that you made was also on the topic of Entropy. You said several times that an increase in complexity is equivalent to a decrease in entropy. This is completely backwards. Complexity and entropy are fundamentally the same thing. Increasing complexity is increasing entropy. An additional point is that information content is the same thing as complexity. 
and the same as entropy. To learn more, I recommend the Wikipedia articles on information theory and entropy information theory. Well, let me he, get this straight. He's, he's saying that in, uh, increased complexity and increased disorder are the same thing? That's what he's saying. I don't understand that reasoning. <laughs> no. no um, it may be I – think, I think he's thinking about something called Shannon information. There's this theory that the more complex something is, that the more ability it is, has to hold information. And so if something is more disordered, it has the ability to hold more information, which obviously information is complex. So, for example, Kirk, if I asked you to send me a text tell me how you're feeling, but I want you to send it only using the letter A. <laughs> okay? <laughs> right? I mean, you're not going to be able to send me very much information, right? I'm not going to be able to no. understand what you're talking about. You're, you're not going to be able to send me information. But <laughs> let's say that I had a string of, let's say I took the Chinese alphabet and I arranged it in random order. Okay? Now, the if you measure information by as Shannon information, that would actually have a high level. It's Shannon information is like the potential information that a text can carry. So Shannon information, it means it could be a very complex message. But the problem is that the way I described it, there's no message at all. No. It's just a random, you know, Chinese characters. There's no message there. No, there's, so, that's not intelligence. So what, exactly. So what he's doing is he's confusing this concept of disorder. In other words, you can see that how the if you sent me a string of A's, a text that had, you know, 13 A's in it, that would be very orderly, right? True. But it wouldn't contain any information. Right. Or I, or you could send me a string of Chinese characters, say 13 Chinese characters. Now that has a lot of disorder in it. Do you see how it has a lot of entropy in it because it's very disorderly? Right. But it doesn't necessarily contain any information and that's where he's making the mistake so he's he's thinking that shannon information is uh, because it is complex in that sense i, I still wouldn't put the possibility for complexity and complexity right. in the same camp they're two that's different right. things that, exactly right and this is the same mistake that the atheists that we were debating made when they were talking about how when ice melts it it increases its entropy, I'm sorry, it decreases its ent entropy because it's becoming more ordered. Well, we were very careful to mention that in this discussion that we've done over the past three shows that it's not disorder that is necessarily what means complexity it, the, or entropy increasing. Entropy increasing actually makes things more uniform, right? Everything is going to deteriorate in the universe until it's nothing but molecule basically infrared photons flying around right. at near zero that's how the universe is going to wind up everything is going to decay away everything's going to kind of flatten out exactly so it becomes more uniform right but that's not the same thing as complexity it's more orderly in that sense but orderliness has a has multiple meanings orderly can mean complex or it can mean just always the same right and so like that string of letters you know string of a's 
And that's very orderly, but it doesn't contain any information. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> that's right. So I think that's where where he's going wrong. I'm, you know, I mean, I'll have to look up the articles that he mentions. Unfortunately, I didn't have time since I just saw this before the show started. Right. So now let's go back then and talk. Well, let me finish off his email just so we see. It says, these two things I brought up, uncaused events and complexity as entropy, are not controversial to people in the fields, although I have seen creationists get them wrong before. I think you owe it to your audience to correct these egregious errors. So I'm not sure that Curtis is telling us that he is an expert in this, this field. If so, he himself has made a terrible error. But again, this is just off the top of my head. I mean, I'll have to look up these articles and see exactly where he went wrong in his thinking. This is, I think this is the only way he could mistake that complexity is, is entropy. I mean, any right. standard text on the second law of thermodynamics is going to tell you that entropy is disorder. It's not complexity. Well, I don't understand his first point either, that there are uncaused causes. Right, yeah. Well, uh, that, see, this that is, to me seems to violate a basic law of science that's pretty well settled. Sure it is. And, and of course it's settled. And, you know, what this is, is this is some particle physicist playing philosopher and just really not understanding. Radio, radioactive particles breaking down, to me, is not an example of an uncaused cause because there's something causing it to break down. Exactly right. Of course <laughs> there is. Of course there is. So what they get confused about is that there's this thing called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And what it tells us is that there's an unpredictableness to the quantum, quantum level of atoms. And so things happen randomly. So, for instance, complex molecules, complex atoms will decay. They'll break down spontaneously okay so so there's a couple things that are going wrong they're they're equivocating on this word spontaneous spontaneous means there's no outside cause but that doesn't mean there isn't an internal cause so for instance we use the term spontaneous applause right that just means that people started applauding for no reason it doesn't mean that there wasn't an actual reason it just means there was no outside reason so well, well, that's to what me, spontaneous means. To me, that there is a reason. There's something that caused them to applaud, but it caused everybody to applaud at the same time, which is where the spontaneity comes from. I yeah, mean, nobody they, caused anybody else to applaud. To they applaud. all decided on their own right. to applaud at the same time, but something made them all decide to applaud. Yes, exactly. It's not truly uncaused, right? right. Not, something is spontaneous. It just means not from an outside source. So... And, of course, what we're talking about is decay, that this is entropy increasing. Entropy always increases, so atoms are constantly banging around in the universe. They're constantly striking things and, and being struck. Energy is being lost, and so you get alpha particles being emitted from the nuclei. Now, if, if you wanted to show something that was actually uncaused, Show me an alpha particle that appears out of nowhere from from no nuclei. Right. Right. I mean, you know, try one moment us it's that, there, and the next we might believe that there, you know, that's an uncaused event. Well, one moment and it's not there, and the next moment it's there, and you can't right. explain it. <laughs> and the, and then he talks about virtual particles. He says are also uncaused, and of course, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Virtual particles are manufactured by physicists in the laboratory. Sure. And they, they do it using energy. You know, you beam high energy through a vacuum and you can create 
virtual particles. Now, and since the, intelligent scientists are doing this, we could call that intelligent design, couldn't we? <laughs> exactly. Right. So, you know, the, it's, they, it appears there's this Heisenberg uncertainty. They don't know exactly when the particle is going to appear or dif- disappear. So there's this, you know, but it's caused by the energy fluctuation in the vacuum. Right. So, you know, there... It, <laughs> It, you can say it's spontaneous, but that does not mean it's uncaused. Right. And so what happens is that atheist physicists use this equivo- equivocation or, or really malaprope. I mean, they're just using the wrong words. They're playing and, word games. Exactly. And they, they fool themselves into thinking that things are uncaused. <laughs> so that's my initial thoughts on Kurt's email. Okay. Wow, we used up half the show with that. Jeez. Half the show of emails. Yeah, and one more thing. Did you know that today is a holiday? Oh, yeah. Tell us about it. Today is February 12th. That means it's Question Evolution Day. All right. We mentioned that a couple of shows ago. Of course, we weren't live last week, but I think we mentioned it two weeks ago that uh, this is uh, Question Evolution Day. It's also being called Academic Freedom Day. And if you would like more information on that or what it means, um, we have a, uh, a friend of ours that has a website that uh, is devoted to this subject. He calls himself Cowboy Bob. And uh, if you want to look at his website, it's uh, www.piltdownsuperman.com. That's a little joke of his on uh, a... Uh, the Piltdown uh, Man. Piltdown Man, which was, you know, for years was considered a missing link or whatever until they found it was a fraud. <laughs> right, right. Well, if you are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the meaning of life. Kirk, We're trying you, to talk about the, the meaning of life that's right. if we Let's ever get to it. it right now. <laughs> what we're doing is we're using a great book. This is by David Pensgard, and it's called Me, the Professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life. And you just uh, received your copy, right? Yes, I had it ordered from Amazon, and I just got it a few days ago. Very interesting and you, book. <laughs> and you're mostly the way through? Yeah, I'm almost, uh, I'm like nine-tenths of the way through it. Well... We're hoping we're still going to try and have a recording with David Pensgard on and talking about his book. But what we're doing is we're walking our way through this book and doing the same thought experiment that Pensgard does in his book, where he is walking us concept by concept, trying to see if we can discover the meaning of life just by using logic, not making any assumptions, and trying to see if we can only figure out what we're certain about. And if we're certain about it, then we try to see if we can, if we have a couple things that we're certain about, we try to see if we can put those things together to discover another, maybe a third thing that we can then be certain about also. We're using deductive reasoning. Philosophers in the past have done this, like Rene Descartes. It's called foundationalism, where you build a foundation and you build up from there. It's like building a brick wall, brick by brick. Exactly. Or Euclid's geometry, building up from the little things in geometry to the complex things. So I'll tell you what, Kirk, if you'd like to go, we're going to review the first 11 of the things we've learned so far in the previous shows. So if you want to... Our top 11 list. Yes. (laughs) So let's, let's go get up to where we are today with our our thought processes. Okay. 
I'm going to start from number one and go up to the most recent one that we did, which was number 11. Okay, we started with concept number one, which is you are thinking. That's pretty sure that you're doing that or else we wouldn't be discussing any of this. Right. <laughs> number two, the logical deduction is if you are thinking, then those who think exist. Right? Right. Okay. Now, the number three brick that we can build on that is you exist. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's pretty sure. Obvious deduction. Right. Okay. Number four is you exist in time mm -hmm. because it takes time to think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Number five, the outside world exists. Since right. you are thinking and you exist, then other people who are thinking must exist too. Therefore, the outside world exists. There you N go. Number six, all events are caused. Mm -hmm. which doesn't take much brains to figure that out. It's a scientific law. Right. Number seven. All that we know about existence is that all events are caused, even at the quantum level. Yes. Even when we don't know what the cause is, it's right. still caused. <laughs> all right. Number seven. Entropy is always increasing. Right. And this entropy is disorder. It's not order. It's not information. It's disorder. This is the second law of thermodynamics that we were talking about. Right. All right. Number eight. If entropy is always increasing, then that means the universe is winding down. Yes, it is. Right. All right. Now, if the universe is winding down, number nine must be the universe must have had a beginning at some point. Correct. All right. When it was totally wound up. All right. Number 10. From that, we can assume that the presence of motion requires an original mover. Mm -hmm. Or as Aristotle put it, a prime mover. Right. Right? All right. And then we come to number 11, the most recent one, which is presence of complexity must require a designer. That's because right. Because complexity can't put itself together. So those are the 11 facts that we have determined, the things that we can know for certain. And then at the end of the last show, we started talking about how the universe is a miracle. And we right. weren't able to really follow through with that idea. So let's try and finish up with that. The universe is a miracle. Right. Now, our definition is a miracle is something that happens even though it's physically impossible. So it's something that is actually violating a law of the universe, a law of physics. Right. Now, is this a contradiction to what we said before that impossible things never happen. At the end of the last show, we were quite clear, impossible things never happen. Right. And David Pensgard in his book explains, actually, it's not a contradiction, and this is why. All right. If we know that low entropy systems, okay, those are complex systems, like life or the young universe itself, which had a bunch of energy at a low entropy state mm -hmm. can never be created by our universe and yet we know that they do exist then something besides our universe must be responsible so this is an obvious deduction from what we know okay according to all the scientific laws that we're aware of the universe couldn't have just created itself right so so what we've discovered is we know that both motion and complexity exist, right, in the universe. We can look around, we see complexity, we see motion. We've discovered that the universe cannot provide 
either one because of the laws of thermodynamics. Right, especially if we go back to the very first motion or the very first instance of complexity. The universe couldn't have done that itself because it didn't exist yet. Right. So instead, what's happening in the universe, it's constantly losing complexity and it's randomizing all motion. Okay. So not only is the universe unable to sustain itself, but it could never have begun by itself. Nope. So that leads us then to four more certainties, four things that we can know for certain. So I love this idea about labeling these with numbers. Uh, David Pensgard doesn't label them in his book, but I, I think this helps to follow through. Right. So number 12, the universe could not have begun on its own. Okay. And number 13, you want to do number 13? Yep. Number 13 is then the universe is unable to sustain itself. And then, so these two things then lead by deduction, logical deduction. Number 14, our universe is inadequate. It cannot stand alone. Right. Now, this this last statement has a, a corollary. It's kind of obvious again. All of these so far, we're just following obvious deduction. Right. The corollary is there must be more. Right. So, the obvious result of our universe being unable to stand alone is that something else must exist. Right. Right? I mean, pretty obvious if you just think about it for a minute. Now, if the universe couldn't have created itself, and if it's unable to sustain itself, it's winding down all the time, remember? It's not winding up. It's losing energy all the time. Yep. Usable energy. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something else that set it in motion to begin with. Right. Remember, it's not losing energy. It's because, remember, from... Right. Energy can't be created or destroyed. That's right. It's losing usable energy. How about that? Correct. That's right. It's losing usable energy. So, this... There's a word that describes what the outside of the universe is. What You know, that thing which is outside, what is it that's outside the universe... It's the word supernatural. Okay. Right? Super, yeah, super is above, over, beyond, and the natural is, you know, the material world and, and the phenomena related to the, this universe. Right. There's the natural and the supernatural. Exactly. Now, the next question is, can we know anything about it? About the supernatural. That's right. Can we know anything about it? Well, how about number 15? Okay. The supernatural exists. We now know that the supernatural exists. Something beyond the natural must exist somewhere. Right. So, isn't that fabulous how far you can get? I mean, look at how far David Pensgard got in his book. We've gotten up to the concept that the supernatural exists. Just by thinking hard, using logic, and only accepting those things that we know for certain. Right. So... This tells us that we can be certain that the supernatural exists. So we prove that there is something besides our universe that exists. Sure. Now, and it must be now, outside the universe. That's right. Because it's not it's natural. It's not part of the universe. Right. So I imagine our listeners are probably thinking that this is as far as David Pensgard can possibly go. But actually, he shows us that logis- logic can help us build on what we've learned. In fact, the very 
same things that necessitated the existence of the supernatural at all can tell us something more about it. So we'll look at that. We just want to remind people that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the book, Me, the Professor Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life. We're talking about the search for the meaning of life and can we do a thought experiment and determine the meaning of life just by using logic and building on things we know for certain. Right. And, and we got, didn't we didn't mention this week too that this whole book is done in a graphic design like a comic book format. Yeah, yeah, which it's makes very it well very done. different. So it's really I think I think he would say he is aiming at the junior high high school level. Yes. So, but talking about some very uh, deep philosophy, but nothing that I think is uh, beyond anybody at that level. No, and of nothing course, you know, kids ban kids did, this from the schools like the atheists want us to. Well, of course, because it disagrees with what they think. <laughs> and of right, course, now, he's he's obviously uh, catering to the very visual generation now. That it, it seems yeah. like kids learn better when they have visuals, you know, exactly. to go along with what they're learning. So that's I think that's why he did this book to, in the form he did. Yeah, I know. I know it helps me a lot when I'm teaching and I use sign language because kids are so visual learning these days. Really? So, No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Come on. Can you imagine a teacher up there doing sign language? Yeah, it's as a matter of fact. all those visual learners. I just had a picture of you doing that and I, that was like <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had a funny thing happen to me. My son, Christopher, very, very bright boy, he was about three years old. And, you know, I mean, when he was two, he was, you know, speaking in full sentences and playing <laughs> playing card games, you know, like Crazy Eights and, and Go Fish and things like that. Oh, I mean, my gosh. Two, yeah, two and a half years old. I don't even so think I was toilet trained at two. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was, uh, I think he was early three years old. I mean, like he could, he could um, count when he was, he could count from like backwards from 20 and things like this. I mean, it's just really incredible. He's a really bright wow. uh, kid. So he, he walked up to me when he was three years old. And he goes, you know, and he had been learning his alphabet because, you know, we were reading to him and things. And he, he liked that stuff. Not that we were forcing him, you know, to, I'm very against this teaching kids to read too early. But anyways, so he walks up to me and he says, Daddy, can you teach me the alphabet? And so, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, you know, I guess he's not that bright after all. That's too bad. But sure, you know, I mean, he's only three. Sure, I'll teach him the alphabet. So I said, okay. So I got a piece of paper and I and I said, okay, this is an A. And he goes, no, 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 daddy. Not like that. With your hand. <laughs> and I said, what? What are you talking about with my hand? And he goes, like this. And he shows me the sign language word for A. Our letter uh -huh. for A. And uh -huh. he goes, A, B, C. <laughs> In sign language. <laughs> I go, where did you get that? He got it from Sesame Street. Oh, okay. <laughs> so his, they had a show on sign language, and they taught the kids A, B, C in sign language. So he could, So here he is, three years old. I taught him. I went through the <laughs> alphabet with him, A, B, C, D, E, F, all the way through. He you remembered all the sign language, and he would walk around the house with his hand hanging down on the side and doing the sign language, going A, B, C, D. So he did his <laughs> alphabet in sign language, A, B, C, D. And I noticed, you know, a, a few weeks later, I noticed how fast he had gotten at it. So I asked him to do it for me, and I timed him, and he did it in 18 seconds. Oh, my gosh. 
Is that incredible? Now, how old is he today? He is 26. And he is what he is, a uh, he's uh, a criminal. He's a criminal analyst. So oh. watch out, all you criminals, because yeah. you've got somebody with a super high IQ tracking you down. <laughs> Especially all you deaf criminals, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He'll sign language you. He'll catch you with your sign language. He's he's one of those guys like on CSI or whatever that's going to examine all the clues and put it all together and oh, you know, from this footprint we can determine the guy was six foot four and had red right. hair and and that's freckles right. on his face and his name is John Smith and he lives at so and so and right. So uh, so anyways, all right. Enough about Christopher. <laughs> You've embarrassed him enough, right? All right. Let's uh, let's see if we can move on. So we have determined that the supernatural exists. Let's see what we can figure out about the supernatural. So yes, let's think we're, back. We're hunting to, for number eleven now. Yeah, let's think back. Well, no, we've got up to fourteen, right? Oh, that's 15. right. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. Supernatural exists. So we want to think back though to the things we learned before and see if they help us with this. I got to learn my numbers now. I'm getting. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I heard you signing signing those numbers too. <laughs> they were there. You got to. You heard me over the radio. <laughs> that's right. You got to bump your hand against the microphone. <laughs> so uh, let's get serious now. Uh, number eleven. The presence yes. of complexity requires a designer. Right. Okay, now you remember that. So something outside of our universe is responsible for decreasing our entropy because we already know that decreasing entropy can't occur in this universe. Right. Something had to have worked in the opposite direction of the second law of thermodynamics to establish the very high degrees of complexity that exist in the universe, and including the early universe. That the universe started out with. Right. So we know things like the existence of life, and large amounts of energy available to do work could not have spontaneously appeared in our universe without outside help. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, there's, it does. It makes a lot of sense. There's no such thing as instant complexity. Right. So we can safely conclude that something outside of our universe was responsible for their presence originally. Okay. Now, remember that complexity is a state of low entropy Notwithstanding the email from our atheist listener, uh-huh. complexity is the state of low entropy and high specific organization. That's where this idea about Shannon information comes in. Right. So uh, a string of A's would but not be high specific organization. That's right. That would be high entropy, not low entropy. Right. So in contrast with that, natural forces, or rather, not natural forces, but... David Pensgard says that nature forces all things towards regularity, okay, like the right. molecules of a crystal, okay? So regularity is not information. Regularity is not complexity, right. okay? Uh-huh. Regularity can be considered ordered. That's true. But it's an order that doesn't have any complexity to it. It's very simple, like the molecules of a crystal, or towards disorder, like the molecules in a gas. So that's what entropy is and that's where this confusion is why this atheist was confused because he thought that regularity meant complexity right okay he, he was so, trying to say that when the entire universe um winds down and everything is like um one degree that that's that's um uniform but it's not complex <laughs> well yeah he was conflating complexity and entropy 
So saying that like the molecules of a crystal are very ordered and therefore they're very complex. Well, right. they're not. No. So the, the kind of regularity, you know, that kind of regularity is the opposite of complexity and contains little or no information, including no uh, Shannon information. Right. So actually you could say the information content of the universe is winding down also, couldn't you? Exactly right. Yes, indeed you could. So there's getting less and less information right. in the universe, including in the DNA of living things, which the geneticist that we had on the air explained to us. Right. That was so really interesting. You were, you were saying that we keep getting genetic imperfections with each generation and eventually the human race is going to become extinct because of these? Isn't yeah, that what fact, he said? Everything, everything will become extinct right. because of the decay of information. Right. So the supernatural gave us complexity. Uh, that's that's obvious. The second thing we know about the supernatural is that something from it was also necessary to get things moving in our universe, right? right. We talked about the prime mover, which we deduced the existence of must be supernatural. Right. So there is a lot about the supernatural that, you know, we can never figure out on our own, but we can know about that thing which gave our universe motion and complexity. All right, so now, let's see. We've part got a few of it, minutes left. Let's see what we can figure out about the nature of that thing. Well, this part of it isn't really anything new because, like we've said before, even Aristotle thousands of years ago was uh, conjecturing this about the prime mover. That's right. That's right. We know that, that it exists and that it never needed to be started. Right. Okay, so, so there's two things. It, never, it, it exists and we know it never needed to be started. Why? Why? Because if not, then the thing which started it is the thing which needed to be started, right? This right. prime mover. <laughs> right. Either way, there's something supernatural which has always existed. Now, David Pengard asks the question, how can we know this for sure? And he answers, because we know that we exist, we know that something started us. Right. And we and didn't start ourselves. That's right. And that something would be in the same boat as we are in... That is, that it would also need a starter unless it was inherently eternal. Right. Okay, so there's something new that we know. The buck has to stop somewhere. Something right. must ultimately be responsible for the existence and the condition of everything else. That makes sense to me. Well, there's no logical alternative. No? I'd like something to see someone come up with one must have started our universe and designed systems of high complexity. Right. It simply cannot be any other way. Is that a pun? Simply? Exactly. <laughs> yes, it is. The early universe was actually not simple. <laughs> so that gives us item number 16. Okay. Something supernatural ordered our universe. Makes sense. Number 17, it was the prime mover. Okay. All right, so we've added two more things that we can know for certain to our list of certainties. And All we right. know this is valid because the first law of thermodynamics states that our universe, in our universe, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So the source for energy in moving things must be supernatural. Right. It must be outside the natural universe. So let's, before we continue, let's briefly look at at an interesting fact that we talked about briefly on a previous show. E equals MC squared. Right. Right. We mentioned before that matter and energy are interchangeable. Right. 
So this has interesting implications when we talk about what a prime mover is exactly. What it means is that energy in the form of motion or kinetic energy was provided by an outside source, right? We call that the prime mover. Right. But what, but what about the matter that was being moved? Where did it come from? Right. That's well, the next question. <laughs> because we know matter and energy are so simpler, so similar, we can see that logically the issue has already been addressed. If the energy of motion must have come from the supernatural, then the energy for the, crea the creation of matter must have also. In other words, a prime mover is the same as a creator. Right. Because everything comes from energy. The same supernatural source that started everything moving must have created it in order to start it moving. And we will continue on with this learning about what this supernatural thing is, this thing that is the prime mover that added the complexity to the universe. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Send your comments and questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,